Good to have Dennis and Marlene with us again, and we're so glad uh, for their presence and their health, and uh, they always, the first time I ever came to visit uh, Monroe, it happened to be around Dan's birthday, and um, he, w- he was a young man then, uh, and, uh, it's, but, but uh, we, w- we were invited out to their house, having never really met them, and Dennis and Marlene were there, and um, Marlene laughed at all my jokes, and uh, she didn't have to do that, but she did, and it really meant a lot to me, and I've always appreciated her <laughs> for that, um, you know, because the rest of my family doesn't all the time, so glad you're here. We uh, began last week talking about man's search for significance and this kind of hardwired desire for purpose that we as human beings feel. And in a church setting and amongst fellow Christians, we talk a lot about sin and about righteousness and about doing good versus doing evil. We don't talk very often, certainly not often enough, about the ways in which Satan attacks us that aren't seen. The silent, quiet ways in our own minds and in our own hearts that cause us to yearn for this significance and this purpose in our life. That cause us depression and anxiety and the crippling things that bring us down and take us away from doing the will of God. We talked a little bit last week about the the natural need that we all have and where we seek that out and how the seeking of purpose and significance, if not done properly, can lead to destructive behavior, destructive to us physically, emotionally, and of course spiritually. And today, in, in, in the present time, I believe that Christians and the church are under assault with these problems They're not talked about enough, and we don't recognize and acknowledge that Satan is behind them. We kind of build this wall of separation between things like mental health and spiritual health because one is dealt with in a clinical setting and the other one is dealt with in a church setting. Well, they're much more closely aligned than we realize sometimes. And while I would never want to push out the the clinical aspect of that in dealing with it, it certainly is important. It's also important to understand how that impacts us spiritually And how we combat that from a spiritual perspective. Because the things that lead us down that road are not separate from what we believe and know about God. He made us to desire this relationship. He made us to desire to be needed and wanted and loved. Adam Smith said, uh, the great economist, um, that it is man's purpose not only to be loved, but to be lovely. He recognized some things about human nature. And I think that's true. We have a desire to mean something to someone and to ourselves. So where did all this start? If we're going to talk about the problems that exist and the challenges we have and the hurdles to overcome, we've got to understand how we have a God-given desire for purpose and where that started and why we as a human race find ourselves scratching and clawing daily to restore that purpose. What happened to it? And why is it there? Well, to understand it, we have to go back to the beginning. And the beginning for mankind is in Genesis, when God formed us and created us. And so we have to look at the creation story 
There's actually almost two creation stories in Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2. They're told from different perspectives. And there's some interesting history that is uh, behind how these stories came to be. Uh, If you have uh, watched our midweek Bible study that we started a couple weeks ago, that we're streaming live uh, right now on Thursday nights um, for for scheduling reasons. But uh, we're talking about how we got the Bible, the historical background uh, of how these 66 books came into our possession. And starting with the book of Genesis, we deal with some source material that was used probably around 600 to 700 B.C. to actually produce the final edit of the book of Genesis. There are creation stories throughout world cultures. Some of the earliest are the Mesopotamian stories of creation that involve two dragons that eat one another and fight over uh, something, and, and then we have pandas. So uh, that's how their story goes. The story of creation, if you were to read the Mesopotamian story and read the Genesis account, you'll see that there are some parallels in how that story is told. Because whoever wrote this creation account, the way they wrote it, was writing in direct response to another story. And so they built that story. And not to say it's not literally true, but that's how they put it down for us to understand. And so we have this first creation story about day one and day two and day three and so on. And then in chapter two, we get some more detail. A creation story told with a little bit different perspective. And chapter two focuses on us, where we came from, how we came to be, and what our purpose was. Genesis chapter two is where we learn a lot about this built-in desire for meaning in life. Chapter 2 represents a more detailed creation of man, even though in chapter 1 it's given an account that God created man and formed him. We see more about it in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 5 of Genesis. Actually, let's look at verse 4. The writer says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Verse 5, though. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. There was something missing in creation to this point. God's made all of this. He's spoken it into existence, but nothing is growing yet because there's no one there to take care of it. And so God decides that this missing piece must be filled And so it says there in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The very Genesis, where we get the name of the book, uh, the very beginning of our lives is there in that story. The beginning of mankind, the human race, and the beginning of our need, desire, and search for significance, purpose, and meaning it starts here because god created man for a purpose that's inherent to the story go back to chapter one look at verse 26 god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them 
God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man with this purpose. He instilled in him significance from the beginning. Go back to chapter two and look at verse 15 now. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. He created us to be the curators of his creation. He made us to care for the world that he built. He had in mind for us a life of joy and pleasure and peace. We were simply the keepers of his creation. Needed somebody to take care of what he made. And we're special to him. The way and the manner in which we are created, the way mankind was created demonstrates the importance and significance we have. And it tells us a lot about how we're different from the rest of creation. A tree doesn't care if you like it or not. Uh, uh, any given animal, now they might respond somewhat emotionally. Certain animals can, more domesticated animals do. They have moods, uh, especially if you've ever owned a cat. They have moods. But in, in, in terms of actual cognition, brain chemistry... Animals don't care if you like them or not. They're going to keep doing what they do. Human beings care deeply if they are cared for and loved. It changes our behavior. It changes our physicality. Have you ever seen someone that was in a relationship that was destructive to their heart and their soul? Have you ever watched someone who once stood tall and proud, been beaten down emotionally? They walk different. They look different. They sound different. We notice these things because human beings respond to how we're treated and how we're seen and how we interpret others see us. And we tell ourselves stories to rationalize those feelings. The story of how God created man demonstrates where we are in the grand scheme of the universe. And it gives us some clues as to why what happens in chapter 3 happens the way it does. Look at all of creation and look at how God made it happen. God said, let there be light. He spoke and there was light. He said, let there be a division between land and water. He spoke and there it was. Let there be an expanse in the sky. He filled it with stars. He gave us a moon and a sun. He set all of the things in the cosmos in order and he did it with the sound of his voice. But when he looked at his creation and he said, mm, something is missing. What is missing? He didn't speak anything into existence. He formed it. He handmade it. All of us know the difference between a store-bought apple pie from the freezer section and what grandma makes when you go see her. We can taste the difference. We can smell the difference. Because there is a difference in something that is mass-produced at the discretion of a factory and something that is formed by hand by someone who cares about us and loves us and wants to feed us. That's the difference between what God created with his voice and what God formed with his hands. That doesn't mean he has disregard for his creation, but he made all the creation for a purpose, but that purpose could be fulfilled by speaking it. Light was created, land and sea separated, stars and moons and suns placed in the sky. 
animals placed in the field. But man, man required dust to be gathered. And of all creation, there is only one part of creation that is spoken of with the phrase, he breathed into them the breath of life. We have a peace of God within us. He gave us life and the power of life was given from God to man directly for a reason. Somebody needs to care for my creation and he formed man. But that wasn't the end of it. He cared very much about the life of mankind. Put them in a wonderful home. What a beautiful world God created for us to live on. Anybody see the pictures of the surface of Mars when the latest rover was roving? I don't know. I know Elon Musk wants to colonize it and people say we're going to live there one day. And I don't have any desire. If I can't walk outside without a helmet on, I really don't want to live there. It doesn't sound like we're supposed to. Maybe one day we will, and that's fine. Uh, I had a friend, uh, a couple friends of mine, we were in college, we had a tradition on Sundays of going to the uh, local Chinese restaurant, Big Buffet, and uh, we would always get our fortune cookies, and they were always silly things, right? Uh, I had one friend that got a fortune cookie one time that said, maybe one day you'll live on the moon. It was like they gave up giving him anything of benefit, but I think about that sometimes. Maybe one day we are going to live other places. But when you look at those pictures, there's only one planet that really looks like it's where we belong. And maybe I'm biased, but this one is pretty nice. I got to be up at camp yesterday for a board meeting. And it, it, I guess it's been about almost a year. I was there for a work day uh, last July. It's been, been a while since I was up there. And it was so nice to go back and to know that that place is gonna be full of, of children this summer. Um, again, it's beautiful. The colors of that creek and its black sand, the falls, the sounds they make, the animal, the wildlife, even the mosquitoes, even the mosquitoes. It's beautiful, this place that God gave us, this place that he created for us to live, this place we call home. He cares about us. It shows in how he made us. It shows in where he placed us. It shows in the relationship that God had with man. We see in chapter three uh, that God is walking about in the garden, just walking about. We don't know what form that was in or if that's figurative, but God was present for the rest of the Old Testament from chapter three of Genesis on. The main focal goal of God's people in their story is where is God, where does he live and how do we get there? Did you know that? You move from Genesis chapter 3 onward, that is the main goal of everything that Abraham, the Israelites, that's what they do. Where is God? Where does he live? And how can we get there? The Tower of Babel. People trying to build a tower to stretch into heaven. They want to get to where God is. Look at Abraham following where God is leading him. Look at the Israelites following after God to a promised land. And from that point on, building tabernacles and temples, forming law and following it and enforcing it. It's all about finding where God is and how to get there. When Israel was taken over by Babylon and taken into captivity, a certain percentage went to Babylon and lived in captivity. Some stayed put, but they didn't have a temple anymore. They didn't have walls. 
And the rest of them went to Egypt. Did you know that? A bunch of them went to Egypt. And they tried to build a temple there. And it stood until like 500 AD. There was a temple in Egypt in a Jewish colony for 1,100 years, long after they had come back to Jerusalem. And in this 50-year period where the Jews are scattered between Jerusalem and Babylon and Egypt, the question is asked, where is God now? He doesn't have a home. There's no temple. We don't have a law. We're scattered about. That question, that struggle, that search began in Genesis chapter 3 because God used to live with them. He used to walk with them. He used to talk to them. And something happened. Something happened that pulled us out of that relationship. Something happened that changed the nature of God and man's relationship with one another. And it involves the entrance of a, a third party. We call him Satan or the accuser. One who accuses it. Uh, if you actually trace the linguistics of that word, you get what would be our equivalent of snitch. It's someone who rats you out. That's the literal thing that Satan does. Looking at, the, at the, uh, the story of Job, I won't spend too much time on it, but looking at the story of Job, we see that Satan is coming before God and talking to him. He's talking to him about, about this, this fellow Job and how righteous he is, and he's making the accusation that, you know, he only worships you because you take such good care of him. That's the conversation. In that conversation, we see something about Satan's motives. Why does he care so much about destroying us? Why does he want to trip us up so much? Why does he want to tear us down? It's not just because he hates us. He hates what we represent. We represent a relationship with God that he has never and could never have. God made angels. He made these celestial beings that, that dwell in another realm that work for him, right? Did you know Jesus didn't die for them? Because they're already there. They don't have an opportunity for redemption. He died for us. And Satan looks upon us as the favorite child. And he hates us because of it. And he spends his every waking moment trying to convince God and us that we aren't worth it. We're not worth it. Look at what he does with Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis. He's described as a serpent which is crafty and, uh, and, and, and creeping along. And he has a conversation with Eve. And he asks her, what did God say about all this fruit you have here? And she said, we can eat anything we want except that right over there. And he says, oh, come on now. God really told you not to eat that? Do you know why he told you that? that that's the question that, that Satan is asking. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. This is verse 4. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The reason God's keeping that from you is he doesn't think you're worth it. He doesn't think you're good enough to taste. He wants to keep you down. He wants to hold you back. See, he diverted Eve's eyes away from the true purpose, which was the cultivating of God's creation, the curating of his world. We were the curators of this garden. We didn't have to work for anything. 
It was there. We just got to live in it. He diverts her attention from the true purpose, the curator of the garden, to a different purpose. God's trying to keep something from you. He didn't want you to know about it. He didn't want you to live this way. And she begins to see this food looks like it tastes good. And it would be nice to know everything there is to know about this world. And so she eats of it. Distracted from her purpose, seeking after a different purpose, something more meaningful, something more desirable. She eats of the fruit. She gives it to her husband. He eats of it as well. And from that moment on, this purpose and this meaning and this significance that was Im embedded in our creation, in our life, is destroyed and altered, and we no longer have the connection as the curator of the garden. What happens? The verse that, that, that uh, Travis read for us describes in part how our relationship changed. Mankind is cast out of the paradise of the garden, no longer just the curator of creation, living off of its fruits that they don't have to work for. Now God says, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to make it yourself. You're going to have to toil in the field. You're going to sweat. You're going to dig. You're going to plant. Every weed in the world is going to grow just fine except what you're trying to grow. Anybody that's ever have a garden? Notice that dandelions have no trouble whatsoever. Corn, sometimes tough. Seems like a design flaw. That's a part of our broken relationship with God from the garden. The things that we want to grow that we need are hard to grow. The things we don't want, very easy. We've got to toil. We've got to labor. We've got to work. We didn't have to do that. We once, as mankind, walked with God and lived off the fruits of his creation as curators of a garden. And now, even still, mankind has been cast out and made to work and toil in this world for every little good thing we can find. Our significance, our meaning, our purpose, we abandoned as a human race in the garden. We left it behind because we chose a different route, because Adam and Eve chose a different route. And from this point on, mankind has been searching for significance. Searching for purpose. And it feels some days like it's a lost cause. Because we do toil, and we do work, and we do struggle, and we do suffer. There's an answer. There's an answer to all of this. Sin changed our relationship with God. We don't dwell with him anymore. We have to find a way to get back to him, right? Well, God had a plan for that. God knew. He knew what his creation would do. He made us to be that way. Was that so that we, he could torture us and play around with us like little toys? No. God wants to demonstrate his power. God needs to demonstrate his glory. He needs to show what a loving, merciful, and caring God he is. He did that not just in the creation, but in how he responded to our throwing away that creation. When we separated ourselves from God, he put into motion a plan that would span thousands of years, millions of written words, and countless lives to bring us to Jesus. That wasn't just because we messed something up and he had to fix it. This isn't patchwork. 
this was the plan from the moment he breathed life into us. He breathed life into us and said, I want you to be a part of me. I want you to be with me. But I've got to show you how broken you are first in order to put you back together. And along that journey, you're going to be yearning and clawing and scratching and fighting for meaning. And the only time you're going to get it is when you look to me. That's the message that God gave through Christ. Because look at what Jesus did to what we broke. We broke, mankind in our sin, broke the relationship with God and cast ourselves out of the garden. We surrendered our meaning. We abandoned our purpose. We lost our way. We keep searching for it, putting our, ourselves in, into all manner of things to try and give us hope and peace. And what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives us a new purpose a new meaning he says i have given my life for you that you can be saved that you can be redeemed that you can be made whole your significance is in god through christ your meaning and purpose is in the kingdom we were once curators of a beautiful garden cast out to cultivate fields in pain and misery and through christ we are redeemed and restored to that purpose not curators of a garden but keepers of a kingdom we have a purpose in this kingdom we have meaning and significance in this church to share the gospel and to bring others to a knowledge of him what man broke god already had fixed we just didn't know it yet jesus was already there who was he talking to when he said let us make man in our image who was John talking about when he said the word was with God in the beginning? It was already there. God has been for all this time showing us what we mean to him. All the while Satan whispers in his ear and whispers in our ear telling us we're not worth it. Telling us we'll never be good enough. God says I don't care if you're never good enough. I'm good enough. God's good enough. And he gave us a piece of himself in our creation and through Christ that makes us worthy. Part of our search for significance is learning to ignore Satan's lies. That tells us, boy, if anybody knew who you really were, they wouldn't like you. God probably doesn't like you very much either because he does know who you are. You ever, you ever hear those lies? You ever tell yourself those lies? You ever feel the shame of those lies? Ignore those lies. God made you for a purpose. And despite our shortcomings, he has continually said, you're worth it. You matter. You have a role. You have a place. You have a life that is worth living because I have a purpose for you, a significance, a glory in store for you. We're going to continue these lessons for a few weeks. I'll be gone next week and then for a couple of Sundays uh, during camp. But we're going to continue this uh, over the course of the next several weeks when I am here. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that Satan tries to trip us up, the traps we fall into, the addiction to the approval of others, and judging ourselves on performance and what others see of us. We're going to hope to restore a focus 
on a significance that is found in God and in his son Jesus. Our true purpose is on the cross. You can't mean nothing to a God who sent his son to die for you. And if we can anchor our significance in the glory of God shown on the cross of Jesus Christ, then we can overcome this world. If you have a need this morning for prayer or for encouragement to be joined with Christ, to be restored in his name, we offer an opportunity for you to do that now as we stand and while we sing together.